listening to a podcast from The National. The business of sport. Is there anything quite like it? Sometimes when you look at football, tennis, rugby, all the world's big sports, you wonder how the economics actually work and how a lot of people are managing to make the kind of millions and billions that are talked of when it comes to these global sports. Of course, not to forget the American versions of baseball and their own version of football. However, I think for this podcast, we're going to keep to the English Premier League for much of it, as well as talking about the UAE and the number of sporting events that are coming up in December, which will also be tied into how visitors and tourists are encouraged to come to the Emirates by the fact they come here and watch top-class football, tennis, rugby, you name it. This is the Business Extra podcast. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. I'm joined by Chris Nelson. Welcome. Thank you. So, Chris, uh, let's dive straight into the uh, the economics or the, the the lack of economics thereof of the English Premier League. Um, one of the biggest stories going on at the moment uh, from the business side of things uh, is the potential takeover of Newcastle United, a northeastern club. Am I right? Is it northeast? Yep, yeah, yeah. Northeastern Enjoy club with club. a big, big tradition, uh, a huge fan base world-class stadium and a uh, consortium led by PCP Capital Partners, which is uh, uh, run by Amanda Staveley, a well-known Dubai financier, is trying to persuade Newcastle's owner, Mike Ashley, who's also the founder of Sports Direct, to part ways with the club. He has, in principle, said he wants to walk away, but it seems like we're not very close to a deal as of yet. And the news in the last 24 hours is another bidder has emerged, a mystery bidder, if you Mm, like. Yeah, well, it would be a mystery bidder. Um, Presumably, Mr. Ashley is uh, trying to um, gain some leverage either because he needs some time or because maybe he wants to try and increase the price, which I believe is around 300, 350 million uh, pounds. He wants 350 to 400... um, in the Nationals' last story, um, they were saying that the second offer had been put in by uh, the Stavely led consortium of under 300 million, but a mm-hmm. one time offer. Initially, they had uh, listened to his, he, he had said he was open to installments and a sum of around 350, which is what they offered. But the snag, and this is where the economics of football gets really yeah. interesting. The snag was if the club were to get relegated, and they're sitting now above the relegation zone in the Premier League, Just but about, not far yeah. off it. Yeah. And so it's not unlikely that they could get relegated. Mm-hmm. Then the price would change. So the installments might stop or be reduced. And he wasn't happy at that. Yeah. So now it's basically he's weighing up a decision of whether to walk away and perhaps take less money. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting from his point of view. I mean, obviously he's a you know he's first and foremost a businessman, albeit that you can't you can't really question his commitment to the club. Um, the fans, of course, don't like him. He's he's been disliked for a long time, um, but it, he's he's not really in a he's not he, although he's a very good businessman. He's not really in the kind of heavyweight division to be able to compete in the way that the fans probably want. You know, they they see Newcastle as a very big club. And it has been, of course, and it's been around a long time. It has a has a, a great history up until, you know, the past 20, 25 years. Um, and the fans want that that status again. But to have that status nowadays, you've got to have billions to be able to spend, or certainly hundreds of millions. And whilst Ashley is a millionaire, he doesn't have that kind of uh, that kind of weight to, to throw around. So he's a, he's in an interesting position. Does he take the money and run now? If if the Staveley Consortium says, you know, this is a one-off offer. Um, and okay, you're not happy with the with um, being paid in bits. Then we'll pay you one one go. Or does he risk possibly um, Newcastle getting uh, relegated and his his um, d- you know his reputation among the fans going even further? 
uh, and then maybe not being able to sell at all should they be relegated for certainly nowhere near 300 pounds 300 million pounds I mean Ash has tried to sell the club before um, they were relegated before as well and, and that kind of put paid to his efforts to sell the club um, it, right now I mean this is interesting because if a new bidder is emerging apparently it is a, a real bid um, we don't know who buy um, that it, what essentially the, the result will be that the negotiations will drag on with Staveley's consortium. Uh, maybe even, uh, you know, it, they, they won't enter into that period of exclusivity to do the serious due diligence they need to do. Then Miss um, Staveley won't be able to undertake the fit and proper test from the Premier League. And the, Ashley's own deadline of getting this done by Christmas will sail by. Yeah. And then you have the January transfer window and you could have conceivably uh, a takeover happening where either you've only got a few days left of the window when nobody wants to be in that situation yeah. trying to buy players or missing the window entirely yeah. And everybody universally acknowledges that Newcastle squad isn't Premier League standard. Yeah. Now, let's have a look at the difference in the economics of being a Premier League club versus a club in the lower divisions. Mike Ashley had to lend Newcastle £130 million pounds mm. when they last got relegated, or he had up to that point, mm. up mm. to that amount when they got relegated. He'd lent them money before. Well, they made a profit when they were in the Premier League. Yeah. So that's the difference. Yeah, it's a massive difference. Yeah, um, the gulf is enormous. You know, you look at the, the TV rights deals that, that are coming up um, soon. I mean, the last, last round was, what, I think it was four and a half billion. And the next round is, is uh, as you were saying earlier, likely to be up to 60% more. So you're looking at six, seven, eight billion. Billion. Yeah, I think that was just domestic rights. I mean, yeah. if you capture in global, you're at eight billion, and that's that could go over ten absolutely, billion this yeah. time. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the pay, the payoff for EPL teams is going to be that much higher um, next time round. Now, if Newcastle are not in a position to take take advantage of that, that's that's a big blow, and it's a big blow for any team that gets relegated. But a team of the size um, of Newcastle, relatively speaking, uh, it's an enormous blow. And if they miss the, if they also miss the the um, the uh, transfer window, and they're left with the, the same team, and no, and possibly you know, no, if, if the if it doesn't go through, no, no money to buy any players, then they're down there for two, three years. How they could be down there for a long time, and all the time they're down there, the value is decreasing. So Deloitte, who do this annual money league, um, I think put Newcastle ninth in terms of turnover. Their turnover was about 126 million pounds, equivalent to the amount that Ashley had to lend them when they yeah. were at the, the Premier League. Interestingly enough, but they had they've been warning. I was looking back at this because you know the idea that the, the the English Premier League is a bubble, that the economics don't make sense. It's not a new idea. And I, I was looking back even as far as 2010, Deloitte themselves were saying this cannot last. You know, and here we are on the cusp of 2018, as you said, going into another round of negotiations for broadcasting rights, where everybody seems to be building a brand new stadium, you know, to at Tottenham yeah. and Chelsea and, and other clubs, um, where it, the gravy train doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. I can't think of another industry where, you know, it, possibly maybe oil when the price is $120 a barrel, right? <laughs> um, apart from that, I can't think of an industry that, that, that and eventually supply and demand there's a reckoning yeah, yeah. but there's no reckoning in supply and demand when it comes to English Premier League football and if we look at clubs around Europe you know Italian leagues Spanish leagues and apart from the top one or two teams you're not seeing this kind of economic strength no, absolutely across the board not, no. and, and it's, it's testament to the, to the, the, the power and popularity of, of the EPL across the world particularly in Southeast Asia um, uh, and to a growing extent um, in, the, in the US Um it, it gives the the EPL an, a very big stick with which to wield over um, you know TV broadcasters and and to bring in more money because 
the popularity is growing exponentially. It seems the, m the more billions that the TV rights companies are charged, the bigger the audience becomes, uh, regardless of, of cost. So I can't see I can't see an end to it. Particularly, I mean, one would imagine there must be, but presumably that'll only be when the entire population of the world is all signed up to watch football, and there's actually nobody left. But and with the economics of it, uh, we don't know, you know, where it could kind of have a ceiling. I mean, if we look across the the Atlantic to the to U.S. sports, which is the, the, the bellwether, right? I mean, everyone mm -hmm. looks at the the success story that is the the, the NFL or yeah. the NBA, and year after year, the amount of money that's involved. But they're almost counterintuitively. Uh, uncapitalistic about things. Um, they have a salary cap in, in in most of their professional leagues. There's no relegation, um, yeah. and and so it's kind of a closed loop, a virtuous circle that yeah. keeps going. Um, and I remember reading that John Henry, who who owns Fenway Sports, which owns Liverpool, um, had said that you know it's, there's so much potential in English football. The brightest minds are not working in English football, um, and <laughs> so <it's>, <laughs> assuming that he he's one of the brighter minds that is going to go in and, and, yeah. and turn it around. But if there really is this idea that eventually they could reach the kind of scale of US sports, what mm. will it take? And there's been some talk, a lot of chatter actually recently about breakaways, yeah. the top clubs in Europe forming their own leagues, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, there has been for a while the idea that, um, say, the top three or four in, in uh, Italy, Spain, and the EPL, Germany and France to a certain extent as well, um, could form a European Super League. Um, I mean, there are logistics elements to be considered there. I mean, you know, if 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 you've you've got to fly from from uh, southern Italy to northern England for a game, I mean that's what that's the three hour flight, three and a half hour flight. If you've got to do that two or three times a month, um, you know, crisscrossing Europe, are they going to be able to play? You know, effectively once a week, and and what if it gets to where there are knockout competitions and they've got to play twice a week? So, it's an idea that's been been around for a while. Um, I would imagine if the economics stacked up well enough, it would happen. Um, quite what those would be, I'm not entirely sure, unless, of course, they could sell the rights even higher than the EPL. Well, they take more of the money. I think that's the idea. I mean, at the moment, the Premier League is quite egalitarian, especially mm -hmm. for foreign rights, yeah. um, where they'd split equally. But if they, and this is one of the contentions, the top six in England tried to change the, the ratio of, of how that foreign broadcasting money was distributed and they were voted down. Uh -huh. So the breakaway becomes enticing because then the likes of Liverpool, Manchester United, Manchester City, the big clubs can then say, we'll take a, a greater share of maybe the same pot, but also gives them the freedom to introduce something like a salary cap. Because yeah. for the economics of any football club, the key metric is the um, salary to yeah. turnover ratio, yeah. which should remain around 50%, yeah. but had been quite high before. But yeah. I think most English clubs, thanks to higher revenue, whether it's from match day tickets or yeah. broadcasting, managed yeah. to get this ratio down. Yeah. But if they're able to stop this you know, massive hyperinflation of salaries... And sort of what the Bosman ruling brought in, which yeah. allowed players to, to move free of charge, then say the clubs are in control again, like they were in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, and also, you, added to that, you've got the financial fair play regulations that came in that forced clubs to be more um, economically sound-minded, I think. Um, and that's beginning to reap rewards as well. So um, it, it could well be that clubs are in a better position to control the extortionate rate of, of um, expansion of, of transfer fees and players' wages. But, of course, if, it, if that was within the context of a European Super League, then presumably 
those players would not sign up for the Super League um, and wouldn't may well be Newcastle that uh, is top of the EPL offering you know 200 million for a for a Ronaldo or whatever you know well I wonder if there is a trickle down effect there's a lot of criticism about how big money at the top if it goes to players and it goes out of the game etc but if you look at the Premier League it's kind of given space to the division below the championship has mm-hmm. become in its own right uh, the, one of the top leagues actually yeah, economically yeah, yeah. Um, funnily enough so the second tier in the U- in England is as economically strongest top tiers in other countries yeah. and and so there is a kind of trickle down effect so mm-hmm. it, it, there's no vacuum if there is a super league a European super league at the top clubs they, you know, then the tiers below it will, will perhaps find their own space too yeah I, th- I think there's there's no reason why it shouldn't follow the model of the EPL and the championship um, I, I I guess from the point of view of, of global fan following um, you know if you've got the top I mean, it would have to be, well, let's say if there's, there's five, let's say it's taken from five European leagues, there would have to be f- the top four teams from all five leagues. So that's, in England, that's, you know, Liverpool, Man City, uh, Man United, Arsenal and Chelsea, any four of those. That makes up for an awful lot of global um, uh, advertising power and global rights power, uh, which the likes of those left behind, the likes of, um, you know, um, Newcastle um, and, and, and others of that ilk do not have the weight globally to be able to, to swing those TV rights deals. So it, it might well put the squeeze on what would then be the EPL um, rather than uh, rather than have the trickle-down effect that the EPL now has with the, with the championship. You get the sense that those within uh, the, the top echelons of football know, you know, feel that they know something that, that those outside of it don't. Um, re- recently, we reported um, that Amanda, uh, Amanda Stavely had also made a bid for, for Liverpool Football Club, and uh, it was in the region of, of £1.2 billion to £1.5 billion, depending on add-ons mm-hmm. and... Champions League qualification, etc., but that had been rejected. Now Liverpool Football Club were quite angry, saying, "Yeah, this has never <laughs> happened." Um, but the, but really, more in, more indicatively of it was it seemed to be an argument actually over the valuation, yeah. and they seemed to to indicate that they think the club's worth much more than one point five million pounds on the current trajectory, yeah. which which tells you that they are and and they see things that we don't. We can only really see. Um, you know the breakdowns that they give us, yeah. but they yeah. know a lot more about what's happening in terms of growth. Yeah. And so there's frightening potential in in, in these top clubs, really. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, for them to turn down an offer of that magnitude, is, it does imply that that uh, that they see something that nobody else can see because they're not on the inside. Um, I, I mean, valuing a football club is, is notoriously difficult. Um, you know, we we run the the brand finance uh, um, value of clubs every year. Um, and the the set of metrics they use to to try to get to a figure is is very complicated, and from a from an outside you know from a layman's point of view, my my point of view, I don't really know whether one set of metrics is more accurate than another set. So for them to for Liverpool to turn down a one and a half billion pound offer. I don't know what metrics they're working on, but um, well, the metrics I guess that matter is how much somebody is willing to pay for the club. And we come back to Mike Ash is saying, "Well, I want three fifty to four hundred, but you have a, a stably led consortium saying, "Well, actually, you know, we'll give you a one-time amount of less than three hundred. Yeah. Then essentially, that's the only metric that really matters. And you know, we're coming into the the end of this season will will be the tenth and tenth year anniversary of, for example, Sheikh. Uh, um, Mansour bin Zayed's acquisition of Man City and if you look at the you know economic turnaround of that club or the economic evolution of that club and 
over the, over that period, they've also managed to get outside investors in to kind of put a valuation on it. Yeah. In the same way that Manchester United listed on a stock exchange to kind of give it evaluation yeah, yeah, to give yeah. it a kind of some kind of scale and reference yeah, point yeah. Um, but they've both shot past those valuations yeah, you know yeah. as, as the, the sport grows as their brands grow as what they do and, and Man City talk about their holistic approach off yeah, the pitch on yeah, the pitch yeah. I mean really the sky's the limit with, the, with these kind of brands yeah, um, yeah particularly you look at Man City and, and what, the, what they do outside of the football stadium you know there's a massive regeneration schemes going on in, in East Manchester which is a very deprived part of the city and they're very heavily involved in that um, so um, you know the industry outside of actually kicking a football around on a, in a stadium. Um, the, these big clubs are now very heavily involved in merchandising. Of course, is enormous as well, and that's a global um, a global aspect. You know, if you're selling five hundred thousand uh, shirts in China, that's a lot of money. Particularly if they're made in China, then you wouldn't, don't have to pay the export cost either. So. Um, so yeah, they, they're, they're more than just football clubs now. These big things—they're they're business juggernauts with with fingers in various pies, and and, I, and the the people running them now are, are so savvy that that's only going to increase. They, they they are industries of and by themselves, effectively now. More business extra in just a moment, but first allow me to tell you about the Nationals' other podcasts. Beyond the Headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct Middle Eastern point of view. An extra time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on Apple Podcasts or find us as always at thenational.ae. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. With me is Chris Nelson. We're talking about the business of sport today. We just had a lovely uh, meander around the uh, economics of uh, English football. Uh, but let's come closer to home now. We are in almost in December, and there is a slew of huge global sporting events coming to this country. We're talking about the Club World Cup, yep. FIFA's Club World Cup yep. uh, in the UAE next month, the Mubadla Tennis Championships yep. at the end of the month. Yep. Um, name BC Golf. Coming yeah. in January, that's yeah. right. Um, we've just had the DP World Tour um, yeah. in Dubai. And the Grand we've got Prix. the Rug- Grand Prix. We just yeah. had that last yeah. week, of course. Yeah. Uh, the Rugby Sevens yeah. is coming up. I mean, just a huge amount. Now, how much of this is important for the overall fabric of, of the UAE's development and its economy and what it's trying to do? It's crucially important. Um, and I think the the, uh, the leadership here have known that for some, some considerable time. Um, in in any uh, in any developed country, um, you you look at how bra- uh, nation branding um, can underpin economic development. Um, uh, in in the West, it's it's occurred kind of organically over a period of, of um, scores of years, um, but in this country, it's been a, a very um, aggressive push, particularly on behalf of in Abu Dhabi, on behalf of the Abu Dhabi Sports Council, um, to attract these major global sporting events um, to to underpin the perception of not only the perception of the economy but the economy itself I mean they bring in a lot of money these events you know Red Bull Air Race for instance um, 24,000 people watched it the ADSC says uh, the direct economic benefit of that one event last year was 27 million dollars Volvo Ocean Race again 160,000 spectators economic benefit to Abu Dhabi 41 million dollars um, so, and and then you, you you tie that in with with uh, brand Abu Dhabi around the world. 
I mean, I'll give you a, a, a quick example of how fast and far-reaching brand Abu Dhabi now uh, has now developed. Um, before I came here, about eight years ago, uh, I, I was in uh, up in North Yorkshire, where I, where I'm from, a uh, very um, uh, sparsely populated region, and I was in a little village pub, and there was a, a, a gnarled old um, sheep farmer there, and I, I got chatting to him and I said where I was going and he had never heard of Abu Dhabi, he'd never heard of the GCC, he'd never heard of Dubai. Fast forward that eight years, two weeks ago I was on my vacation in the UK, I was back in the Dales and I was in uh, a little village pub and I was chatting to another gnarled old sheep farmer. I said that to when I told him where I was, he said, oh yes, Abu Dhabi, he said, I've heard a lot about Abu Dhabi, yeah. He said, in fact, uh, there's a group of lads from the village that go every year to the Grand Prix and they say they have a great time. So I said, have you not been tempted to go yourself then? He said, uh, he said, e lad, he said, give us a chance. He said, I'm 97, I've not been to Leeds yet. So, you a know, global traveler, a, glo a global, tra a global traveler who hasn't left his valley, but he's fully aware of Abu Dhabi and this region. And that is off the back of sport. Um, and that's what, that's what major sporting events do. They're, they're seen by the world and the country that hosts them is seen as being fully capable and therefore um, on the same level as any other developed country to, to host such an event. And that, of course, has a trickle down into how they must be able to do business. I mean, the GP itself is often referred to as the biggest business meeting in the Middle East. Um, brand Abu Dhabi and brand UAE is, is to a great extent built on the perceptions that come forward through these big sporting events. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's immensely important to the economy. Yeah. I, mean, I think it, work, it works both ways. There's, there's these, like the Formula One is, is the hosting of a, a sort of global caravan of, 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 of sport. But then also the UAE has had a lot of success in sort of organically growing their brands. The Dubai World Cup, the horse yeah. racing, for example, yeah. Yeah. over the years has become one of the premier yeah. um, fixtures on the racing calendar. Yeah. And Dubai and the UAE has become yeah. well known for horse and racing. The race to, race to Dubai for the golf. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So they, they're able to mix and match. And I guess it ties into the other things they're doing, um, the hotels, the theme parks, the Airlines obviously is all part of it. Um, you know, Emirates and Etihad are, are global sponsors of sporting events, yeah, yeah. Uh, whether it's football or rugby or horse racing, yeah, you name yeah. it. Uh, but now, you know, things have kicked up a gear with the opening of the Louvre in yeah. in, in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. I mean, that is, I mean, for anyone who hasn't been yet, I mean, no, staggering. You, you yeah. can't actually overhype this. <laughs> no, you can't. No. You really can't. And so you you got that sort of world class landmark, something unique. And you're tying it within a few hours, like you said earlier. It's not a big country. It's easy to get around yeah, from one yeah. side to the other in a single yeah. day. Um, you can attend you know, global sporting events, go to a global art gallery, do all of that in one place. And you know, for six months of the year, the weather's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, even though we've had a bit of a downturn in tourism in the last few years, thanks to the fall in oil prices, yeah. Do you feel that 2018 is the chatter there, is the sentiment there that things might be picking up? I think they will start to pick up um, next year. Uh, and I think another, of course, major driver, well, another two major drivers over the next, but uh, not so much next year, but certainly 2019, is the Asian Cup. Um, you know, I mean, that's the, behind the World Cup is probably the biggest football event in um, uh, on the planet. Um, the 215 version was seen by 800 million people worldwide. Um, there were three million spectators went to the games, um, but this year the UAE is hosting it, and the amount of teams has gone up from 16 to 24. So you can you can I don't know you can double 800 million. You can you can double the spectators, um, which will be an enormous uh, addition to to the uh, the economy from a sporting aspect. 
and then there's Expo 2020 in in uh, 2020, obviously. So, yeah, I think I think the only way is up really for for the tourism sector off the back of those things. Yeah, the uh, dots are connecting to Expo yeah. 2020. I mean, I think when when they first uh, won the the right to host it uh, way back in I think 2013 or yeah, 2014, yeah, it, was, yeah. uh, it was difficult to sort of see the the connection. But mm-hmm. it's they've they've been quite flexible in how they've they've approached that event, and it's tying in quite nicely to all the other things that are going on yeah. in terms of tourism. Uh, there's been a big push towards culture, obviously, with the Louvre, but also archaeological sites yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, so there's, it's really been a, a sort of 360 approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, you know, 10, 15 years ago, when I first moved here, it was very much this was the beach destination, particularly yeah, Dubai. Yeah. You came, you, you, you stayed in a, in a fancy five-star hotel on the beach, the best of service, the best of food, all of that yeah. not too far away. And of course, that's still there. But uh, tourists have evolved. I mean, you've got all kinds of trends now, dance, tourism yeah. you know uh, cultural tourism yeah. you name it they're all kind of well, up look and at, down look at RAK and you've got you know them setting themselves up as a as a, as a, a global hub for adventure sports right. and, yes. and the you know, zip line yeah and, the zip lines the climbing and yes, you know exactly. all the mountaineering stuff and all that so there, I think there seems to be a, a really sort of uh, structured approach to this that each emirate is bringing their own sort of yeah. A game to things yeah, definitely. Um, and like you said you know hosting global events will will bring in new people yeah um, I think the, the, the question mark remains you know, can then you build on that success? You know, that's always always the the, the, the challenge. Is like, okay, it's one thing to bring people here, whether it's for an expo or mm-hmm. you know a sporting mm-hmm. event, but can you get them coming back? Well, I think I think the the country is pr- pretty much um, already proving that because visitor arrivals for sports events, particularly, are only going up. And the, as I say, the Abu Dhabi Sports Council, um, which is was an independent body from 2011, is tar- is tasked with in, with with keeping that momentum going and with increasing um, uh, tourism um, through sports, so that's only going to. I can only see it increasing, and as you say, you know, with with things like the Expo coming up, the Asian Cup, these other big things are slotting into place. There's no reason why it shouldn't, um, you know, continue to expand um, uh, over. The, really the foreseeable future there's a lot of talk about legacy that that is another you know sort of question mark over whether you know it's always seems to be with the big events the olympics the world cups you know the the battle seems to be to stage it to host it to build the venues and then afterwards there's sort of scratching of heads of what to do some countries are better than others at maintaining a legacy um london's 2012 olympics is held up as a as a great Mm -hmm. uh example example, of 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 keeping a legacy going brazil not so much uh from there recent uh, hosting of yeah. the World Cup and Olympics but it's not an easy thing to do and, no. and they're looking ahead to the expo and they're saying there has to be a legacy here so we want people to live in this space we want people to work in this space we want companies to come here you know because it's important right Dubai can't um, spend spend the money on it just just for the glory just for of six hosting months, it. Yeah, yeah no, it can't that, it no, can't be done. No. There has to be the the bigger yeah. picture there yeah. to bring in the population growth, to bring in the companies. There has to be a factor. I think what else it does as well is it, it provides a test bed for for um, new technologies. You know, particularly things like driverless cars and and the much touted flying cars, um, and those in themselves, uh, because Dubai is going to be a first adopter for those kind of things. Uh, those in themselves will become attractive to tourists. Um, you know, if if you could go to the Louvre one day and then you can go on a flying flying taxi ride over Dubai the next day, that's an added bonus to your itinerary, isn't it? 
Yeah, I find it fascinating that you know we are uh, seemingly coming out of the trough of, a, of, a, of an economic dip. Yet you know the you have to keep going with these things. So you know you can't just say, oh, it's a bad time. We'll pause on hosting you know X <laughs> yeah. event or Y event. You have to keep going, yeah. and 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 fans expect it. Yeah. So you know it, it, there's a sort of double edged sword with sports. Once you take on the mantle, it's very difficult to to then put it down again. Yeah, isn't, you, you can't. Know? You can't. Get it's rid a, of it's it, a generational yeah. commitment. Yeah, absolutely. You know you, you have to you have to keep going and. Sometimes it's it's almost easier to host one massive Olympics or one massive World Cup because then you're done with it. Yeah. You know, apart yeah. from the legacy questions. Yeah. But if you're continuously year on, year out, hosting a golf tournament or yeah. a tennis tournament, yeah. the expectation is that you have to because yeah. then you lose your reputation with the fans. Absolutely. Yeah. You lose your reputation with the players. Yeah. They won't come for something else. Yeah. The and sponsors. You, yeah. I mean a huge amount of yeah. pressure. It's a it's a it's a massive amount of pressure and it's a big risk. But I think again looking back over the past four or five years, you know, certainly since the GP started, look at how well it's been handled here. They haven't dropped the ball at all. Um, and I think that it's testament to how savvy they are and, and how clever they've been about what they choose, how they put it on and, and how they maintain it. And um, I can't see, I wouldn't see a reason in the near future for why the UAE, for instance, would, would, would uh, bid for the World Cup. Um, I can't see that there would be a particular point in that, really. What would it add, given the cost it would be to put it on, what would it actually add? It doesn't, that wouldn't, to me, make sense. So there's a sort of, it, it, there is a, a kind of cutoff point at which you're looking at different sporting events. You're saying, okay, that's going to bring X for an outlay of Y. Yeah. And then we can see that benefit. But at some point, and I guess, that, you know, the argument is always, you know, for the national pride it brings, right? That's yeah. why you would host one of yeah. these global events. Yeah. And certainly I think uh, the UAE in different forms has looked at Olympics, has looked at mm -hmm. World Cups. Mm -hmm. But then, as you said, they've passed on it for mm -hmm. other things. And mm -hmm. you almost feel like an expo makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Sort of fits in in that regard, or a tour of Abu Dhabi, or a tour of Dubai yeah. cycling. Yeah. And I find those cycling races almost like um, tourism board adverts on wheels. Yes, mean, when they yes. came up with the Tour de France, yeah. for example, the Giro d'Italia yeah. was before TV was invented, yeah. right? Yeah. They didn't know there'd be sort of these sweeping cameras, <laughs> you know, filming kind of fairy tale yeah. castles in yeah. the, in the, on yeah. the landscapes. Yeah. And he's saying, "Oh, yeah. I've got to visit that." Yeah. Before well, forgetting uh, the race, even. Yeah, I mean, you go back to you, uh, taking that that example particularly when it when it was um, taken to Yorkshire and started in Yorkshire a couple of three years ago that was that was over a million pounds direct benefit to the Yorkshire economy which is a pretty poor economy anyway so those that you can see that that such events and, and the the tour here the Abu Dhabi tour um, there, there was a, a global audience of 11 million people and 169 countries it was beamed to so even what, what you might think is a niche um, uh, sport uh, can, can still have an enormous economic benefit, uh, relatively speaking. Um, it's only the tip of the iceberg um, because you know we're talking about broadcasting in the most sort of traditional sense. Yeah. But when social media streaming Absolutely, gets involved, yeah. and you know coming back to Premier League, there's a lot of talk about in the next window for broadcasting that the likes of Facebook and Twitter will dip yeah. their toes in the water. Yeah. So when these platforms get involved in their reach, then really are beginning to see things to start cooking yeah. when you know you can reach literally yeah. you know a billion plus people yeah. directly on their phones yeah. at any time yeah that's and then, and be then a it's getting very changer. exciting isn't it yeah absolutely and who knows it could well be that you know 10 years down the line liverpool turned down a, a bid for 10 million 
that 10 billion pounds, you know. Exactly. Yes. So. We don't know where the valuations are going to go. But I guess the business of sport is, um, you know, continuously confounding us. Yep. Um, and, you know, upsetting economists everywhere. Yes. I think. Yeah. It's a good game. Indeed. Chris, thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you. It's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, thanks to Kevin Jeffers, our producer. Uh, this has been the Business Extra. We've been talking about the business of sport. Uh, please check out our full coverage on the national.ae. You can download this podcast and all our others on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your audio content. Please join us again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.